Hold on to your butt. I'm quite surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, it's us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to be. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Welcome to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. I blame Dan Morris. I've tried to stay away from, you know, the death of Prince, but it was in the news all day today. No charges being brought. And it got me thinking um, beyond just the purple one, the purple Yoda, his royal badness. Oh, this song is so good. Seven, one of the best. Um, It got me thinking because I was watching the Andre the Giant documentary. It's a point I've heard people like Jordan Peterson make that when you reach high levels of success, and it gets very weird. Um, also, take the Ric Flair documentary. Uh, it depends on the business, but like fame along with fortune, you have to forego a lot in life. There are very rarely does somebody reach the most powerful position in society, the most, the wealthiest position, the most famous. Uh, without losing something else. And I just think that's a an interesting thing. I guess there's always uh, trade-offs in life. Always trade-offs. Man, that was a clunky segue. Because my guest this evening is, uh, well, he's a professor. And uh, he's also, well, the official title is Adams Bibby Chair of Free Enterprise at Troy University. Steve Miller. Hey, Steve, how are you? Hey, Joey. Great to be on. No, I think the last time we talked um, in person was on a Saturday, mm-hmm. and we got going over, and I'm still on this kick because they're such big books and such a good point, of Deirdre McCloskey. Yeah. And and sort of this idea of uh, that prudence isn't enough, necessarily. And I'll, I'll start here, Steve, because I've been reading, or I finished it, and the first half of the book made me very happy. The second half, I was a little annoyed with it. And this is the book Sapiens by Yuval Harari. Mm-hmm. And in the first half, there's this interesting point he makes about the distinguishing distinguishing Homo sapiens between Neanderthals. Is that in Homo sapien uh, settlements, what they can find at least through archaeology, there's signs of trade. And not just reciprocity, not like I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, but actual, I have something different and you have, than you have, and I want the thing you have and you want what I have and we'll trade it. Now, this seems like just a basic 101, yeah, everybody takes it for granted. But I think people sometimes, um, especially you as an economics professor, I appreciate this deeply, uh, take 
trade for granted and how complex a whole network of trade or a whole economy can become and the beautiful things it can do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you really reminded me of something there, talking about reciprocity, mm-hmm. uh, right? Not only uh, not only did Neanderthals do it, but we know a lot of animals engage in behavior that ha- that shows signs of reciprocity. It's trade that is unique to humans. As a matter of fact, I think I saw a study once that talked about vampire bats and how they would show reciprocity to each other. It's pretty gross. Wow. Apparently, they suck the blood out of an animal, and they'll share that blood with others by regurgitating it into each other's mouths. <laughs> you suck that blood, I'll <laughs> suck your blood from you. So reciprocity <laughs> is uh, across many, many species on the planet. And it's remarkable that, I think that's a cool fact, that we actually share that with animals, but we take it a little further. Yeah, we definitely do. Because with trade, what you're doing is you're recognizing mutually beneficial exchange. You're recognizing not just that you have something that someone else wants and maybe you care about them and you want to share with them. That's good. We all have that instinct and that impulse. But this is about wanting something better for yourself and realizing that, wait a minute, you can get something better for yourself by finding something that someone else wants or coming up with an idea for something that someone else wants. And by providing a service, as Walter Williams likes to say, by serving your fellow man or woman, you're able to get more for yourself. That mutually beneficial exchange is all about figuring out what others would like to have, how their lives can be improved, and if you can make an improvement for them, then you'll actually see your life improved as well. Now, in, in the book, uh, Harari keeps pointing out that uh, this requires to have trade, you need trust. And my point of view is, well, I think trust helps. Like, people that can trust each other more probably trade more often. But I don't think trust is necessarily required, Right. Well, I would question which is the uh, causative mm. variable. Old chicken right? the egg, yeah. Right. So what's 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 causing what's causing what? How which way does the causation run? Because trade, I would say, tends to increase and grow trust, and it can actually create trust where maybe there hadn't been much before. What you find is countries that trade with each other rarely ever go to war with each other. No, oh, and that is a great hope of mine. And yeah, I mean, trade wars usually lead to actual wars mm-hmm. um, but though a tariff is kind of like a blockade just in a way it's like a partial blockade a, a partial blockade it's not a hundred percent tariff we're not actually stopping everything uh, but there's another point in the book it, it's almost where Harari contradicts himself he says that money he put money up there with faith and it, what he called steel what he really means is empire like mm-hmm. political conquest or cultural uh, domination whatever and so it's those are the three things money empire and faith that have actually brought people together and created a global community that we now have um and so to me it's you would think the way money is characterized and money is i guess a, we can get into how that comes out of trade mm-hmm. But you would think the way it's characterized these days, it's Gordon Gecko. Greed is good. It, you're just looking out for yourself. It's this dog-eat-dog world. I mean, how could you possibly create cooperation with money? Yeah, well, what money does is it's actually a lubricant for trade. That's kind of the way to think about it. Hmm. So what I said about it is coming up with something that you know someone else will want and then you have something to trade with them for something that you might want that could make you better off. What money does is it serves as this universal medium of exchange. If it's a if it's a form of money that everyone is pretty much willing to accept. 
So money makes that trade a lot easier rather than needing some sort of coincidence of wants where I happen to be producing or have something that you want and you happen to be producing something that I want. We're able to exchange money for the goods that each of us produces and we know that that money can be widely accepted anywhere. Absolutely. And it can really, I mean, it can't always be just anything. It would be tough to use, say, elephants as a medium of exchange. Uh, But I guess historically there's been seashells and prisons. There's been cigarettes. Right. Um, And it's amazing how, I'll put it this way, the people who say, let's go back to gold, and I think there might be good reasons for that. A gold-backed currency or gold itself is treated as money legally speaking, but uh, gold itself doesn't have to be money. Money really comes from our subjective valuation, right? Yeah. So, Joey, I don't know how long it's been since you've thrown out the term spontaneous order, mm. right? But money truly is a spontaneous order. That means it's, a, it, it's, it's the result of human action, but not of human design. We think of money currency as being something that is designed and created by a central government, maybe, and then provided to everyone. But the earliest forms of money actually emerged on their own, just mm. through human experimentation and human trade. And what people found through trade many, many years ago, thousands and thousands of years ago, is that there were certain things that seemed to be tradable for almost anything. And those things emerged as money. Hmm. And they had certain characteristics, like you mentioned. They tended to be portable, easily divisible, non-perishable, etc. Okay. So, And it does bring the strange thing that goes against what people say is like it just tears people apart. And no, and no doubt if like if you have a good friend or a marriage and you have money issues, so to speak, that can tear people apart. And it's technically the love of money that's the root of all evil, not money itself. But does not money allow for, uh, for engagement? Like you were saying, the chicken or the egg with trust. Right. It certainly does. I mean, the, I don't know about money drawing people together, but money because it facilitates trade. Trade right. is what draws people together. There you go. Because people can be made better off when they specialize in trade. They can be made much better off. Okay. Now, you bringing up spontaneous order reminds me of an article I read uh, this morning. Um, I got, do you know Barry Brownstein? Or I've heard the name, but no. Uh, it was a piece on fee, uh, Foundation for Economic Education. And it was about a class he was teaching in 1999. It was an MBA course... And it was 30 kids from China. He said half the class was from Shanghai. The other half was from Beijing. Mm. And the kids from Shanghai, because in 99 there was already the liberalizing effects of markets, were very much at odds with the kids from Beijing, where all the government buildings are, where the government really uh, emanates from. And he said the most divisive article he shared with them, or essay he shared with them, was Hayek's The Use of Knowledge in Society. Now, you use the term spontaneous order, and, you know, sometimes I try to get out there this idea that Hayek gets at in The Use of Knowledge, but for those maybe unaware, what is kind of the the gist, the long and short of what Hayek points out? The argument that Hayek makes is that nobody has all of the knowledge necessary to figure out how much to produce of goods, what to produce, 
and and how to produce them, the processes that are necessary to efficiently produce goods and services. So no one has the ability to centrally plan an economy. That's what the use of knowledge in society was about. But he makes this particular argument about the nature of knowledge itself. Mm. And it's frequently very, very hard to articulate and share, and it's usually held at a very local level. Hayek talked about uh, a man on the spot. Mm. Right, which means that often the man on the spot, the man who has fixed fifty uh, Dodge Neons in the last week, right? right? I don't know why I picked that car, right? Or in the last month, he has a particular knowledge that may not even be contained in the shop manual, right? Or may not even be possessed by people who've worked on them in the dealers in the past. That he has a particular type of knowledge from dealing with a particular problem that he's had to solve over and over. And we see the same things in production, and we see the same things in markets. Well, and it's almost like the even that guy at on the ground with that localized knowledge if you asked him to write an essay on it he or tell you know do a radio interview tell us what is this particular yeah. type of knowledge you have he probably couldn't express it in that way no uh, what we see is often we've all learned things like this right yeah. where someone tells us we still don't get it and they actually have to sometimes walk us through and show us in in, in a particularly human one-on-one way yeah uh, and so that type of knowledge is often called tacit knowledge. It's knowledge that you either have to learn by doing something or you have to learn really by being coached very specifically. Well, and it's amazing, uh, this this article about the Chinese students. Of course, the folks from Beijing were saying, oh, no, we have to have central planning, especially in a poor country like China with not as many resources as America. That's always the argument. It's the resources. Um, but then the folks from Shanghai were kind of waking up to this idea. And there's one student said it was like uh, that lightning in a bottle moment where – and this is a, such a cool idea. Economics, as some would say, is a value-free science in the sense that it's, it is a science. You're trying to s- assess, here's how the different... Uh, well, I'm not an economics professor, so I'm stumbling <laughs> around here. But you're not saying how people should act. Right. You're just describing how people are right. acting. It, tri- it strives to be a positive science. Now, there are normative. In other words, there are value judgments that come out of that positive understanding. But when economists say that economics strives to be a positive science, that means it is trying to focus on the facts. Do you think economics – I know there are, of course, folks who come from whatever political party and persuasion. I'm sure there are economists in the Communist Party in China. But mm-hmm. do you think the way we've kind of understood economics, starting with Adam Smith, tends to lead people – to normative claims, to other political points of view. I think so, especially around issues like trade. Yes. And there's a pretty strong economic consensus on things like international trade. And that's amazing to me, is like even these economists that will fight over, say, the minimum wage and its Mm -hmm. effects, on the issue of international trade, it's a pretty universal uh, consensus. And y'all actually have uh, coming up a, a talk at Troy University about this very issue. Yes, we do, next week. So on Wednesday the 25th at 6.30 p.m., uh, and the room is Bib Graves 129. You can check us out. It's business.troy.edu slash Johnson Center. You can learn a little more about us there. But the talk is going to be given by Dr. Mark Perry, who's a professor of economics and finance at the University of Michigan, Flint. 
and he's also a research fellow, a senior fellow with the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., and he has a blog called Carpe Diem, and he writes about a bunch of interesting issues, uh, but his talk is going to be on the economics of trade, and specifically, the title of the talk is, Is an America First Trade Policy Good for the economy. Now, I've I've done battle in a friendly way. I've I've learned that you know, it's like fuck. I'm I'm like a cat that might hiss at you, but then I purr later. Mm-hmm. I'm the dog that gets scared. The hair goes up on the back of my neck, and then I will lick you later. Um, so I've had these battles uh, with folks that I am unabashed unilateral free trader. And so the arguments I hear, and I want to do them, you know, be charitable mm-hmm. and throw some of these at you, is like, well, it's not an even playing field. That this country over there, say China or whoever, whomever else, is uh, they're putting a huge tariff, and they don't have the same regulatory burdens that we have. This isn't fair, so we need to put on a tariff to keep those foreign products from coming in. What, when somebody says that to you, what is, kind of comes to mind? Well... What comes to mind is, especially if the argument is they're not playing fair, they have tariffs or they have subsidies, they're doing things that are inefficient on their side. Because that's the thing. Mm. The tariffs on their side are inefficient. The subsidies that they're giving to domestic producers, for example, in South Korea, those are inefficient. What they're doing is making their own markets and their own industries less efficient and less competitive. So when we say, oh, they're doing these things and they're unfair, it makes their goods cheaper, I think to myself, well, the fact that they may be shooting themselves in the foot somehow is not a reason for you to also shoot yourself in the foot. But then the other thing I think about is the arguments always come down to it's not fair because they are making their goods cheap. Mm. So would it be bad if they just gave things to us for free? Would it be bad if Japan just started shipping us cars for free? Would that actually be bad for America? Would that be bad for Americans? I understand it would be bad for the U.S. automotive industry, but by and large... That's a, that would be a pretty short-term effect. Pretty soon we would realize, well, this is a good thing. We're just getting free cars, right? right? And no one would have to worry about that expense ever again. So the fact that things come to us over time cheaper and cheaper because other, country, other countries discover a comparative advantage. They discover that they're able to produce something very well uh, for themselves, and they realize that this is something that allows them to specialize and realize the gains from trade. I, I say all the better. Now, I understand. It's like I said. If they started giving us cars for free, that would be bad for the U.S. automotive industry. I understand that. But ultimately, is it a bad thing for the price of goods to be going down and down over time? Right. I frequently disagree with Baron Coleman on this, by the way. <laughs> yeah, and we have fun back and forths. Oh, well, I might have to get you all in here to argue back and forth one time. Uh, because, yes, you know, I told him, you know, I'm having Stephen Miller, Steve Miller on my show. And, and not the bald populist, Baron. <laughs> not the guy that works for Donald Trump. I like populists with hair, with a nice quaff like Baron who cut their own hair like Baron. I like those types of populists. I mean, I don't agree with their trade policies, but I like them. They're good people for the most part. They're just looking out uh, for the folks at home and uh, good Americans. But that language right there, America, we're Mm -hmm. looking out for America. When I hear that, I'm like, okay, depending on if you're a worker or a consumer, you're often a worker and a consumer at the same time and the same person. Uh, Workers, people, generally have different interests different interests i don't just mean like oh i like walks on the beach under the moonlight and feel the sand between my why do you like the sand in between your toes it's it feels weird feels weird 
anyway, I mean economic interests, that everybody has a different position in life, different, different perspective, different localized knowledge, as you put it earlier. And to kind of put all these incredibly complex web of different interests under the banner of America, and this is how it works, it's obviously going to lead to picking winners and losers and having the government playing that role as the person who's deciding the winners and losers. So is it is it really in America's interest, like all 300-something-plus Americans, to say, we're going to put a tariff on steel to help steel workers? By and large, no. It benefits the steel industry in the U.S. at the expense of everyone else, of course. Uh, and uh, another interesting rationale is trade deficits. You hear this sometimes, mm. right? Because what, what is a trade deficit? A trade deficit is when you buy more of something from someone or a country than they buy from you. So, you know, for example, the U.S. has a trade deficit when it comes to China, right? The U.S. buys more Chinese goods and China buys U.S. goods. Right. I have a trade deficit with Walmart. Would it make sense for me to say that I have a trade deficit with Walmart, therefore I should put a 25% tariff on everything I buy from them? So I can pay more and buy less. Hmm. Yeah. I have a huge trade deficit with the freshest of markets right mm-hmm. down the road. I've been eating a lot of steak and fish. And, yeah, it's been good, and I'm happy. I'm happy that that's the thing that I think that gets lost. It's like you're receiving something in return. It's not like this is just you're throwing your money away and you don't gain anything from this. And it baffles me. And another thing that makes it a bit more complicated is it's not like it's just Team China, Team South Korea, Team America. One of the best employers here in Montgomery is a Korean company. That's right. And so it becomes very complex in the sense of you don't necessarily know, unless you're in that industry maybe, where what are our inputs are coming from being imported into the United States. Who are you exporting to? What will be the retaliation, right? Right. And, and I think at different times, you know, over the past couple of years, you and I have talked about the SAI pencil. And one of the important, yes. one of the important insights of that essay, which, by the way, was written in the 1950s, is that for any given product, for something as simple as a pencil, we're talking about one or two dozen different countries that the materials for that pencil come from. And really, when you think about all the processes used to create the materials for the pencil and for the pencil to come to market in the U.S., although the pencil may have been made in upstate New York, right, may have been assembled in upstate New York, the wood may come from Oregon or California, the lacquer is going to come from Myanmar or somewhere, right? I mean, and... uh, Some of the materials may have come from Brazil. So it really is coming from all over the world. People from all over the world, not just dozens, maybe thousands or tens of thousands of people from all over the world are actually indirectly involved in producing a pencil because they're directly involved in producing things that are required to make the pencil. And so every product is nowadays a very international product. But I say nowadays, like I said, in the 1950s, that was true of a pencil. Mm. It's even more true now if it's a smartphone or if it's a car or if it's steel itself, really, because what it takes for the steel industry to exist internationally, that requires the cooperation and coordination of many, many people who never meet each other and never know each other. And so that's an example of trade and how it brings people together, people who have different creeds, 
right? People who may have very, very different views on political issues, they end up working together because they see profit in it. And so that then leads us to, you know, we could have a whole discussion about profit and the morality of profit and what that means. Yeah, and that's where I'm interested in, where we kind of left off our conversation when I spoke to you last Saturday, uh, or I guess that had to be over a year or so ago, man. Yeah, probably. Time flies. Um, But the point that Deirdre McCloskey makes is prudence isn't enough. Just the profit motive isn't enough. Uh, but I think with just the prof motor, you can get a lot stuff, a lot of stuff done. Um, but what do you think about this idea that we need more? Um, because Harari drove me nuts. That's the part of the book where I was pulling my hair out, where I'm like, talk to Matt Ridley, talk to Deirdre McCloskey, where he essentially neglects a whole book written by Adam Smith. He only cites the wealth of nations. Mm-hmm. Um, what say you, and how does the profit motive play into our larger larger moral scheme? That's a big, big question, It is, Joey. it is. Go how on. does the profit motive play into our larger... Well, a fun part of that, those big questions, you can answer them however you like. Right. Yeah. So, it goes back to something I mentioned earlier, right? The profit motive, if we're talking about a world of voluntary exchange, if we're talking about a world without artificial trade barriers. If we're talking about a world where people aren't jailed for trying to voluntarily trade with each other, then seeking profit requires you to, like I said before, serve others. Hmm. And it gives you the incentive, it does give you the incentive to be prudent, which you mentioned before, prudence, but it also gives you the incentive to show a lot of tolerance for others. Hmm. There's more tolerance in the sense that if you if you trade in good faith, that you aren't screwing people over in some business deal, essentially you can build up a reputation of not trading, not being even-handed, or at least charitable in the way you deal with others. Well, I mean, that's another that's another feature. Yes, of a, of a, of a profit mechanism and of a voluntary exchange is that anyone who wants to succeed in the long run, anyone who wants to see long run profits is going to have to think very hard about their reputation. And your reputation, we see this in the world now especially, your reputation can be ruined very, very quickly. Oh, yes. So that's very, very true of businesses. They're starting to realize how much social media affects them. And companies who do make mistakes are often nowadays very, very quick to go and seek people out and try to correct them. Well, it's now social media itself, those Facebook hearings. And imagine you saw some of them. Yes. It's it's amazing to me that there's all these proposals of regulation, I think asinine questions being asked by the senators. Um, some just stupid. Some, I think, this that conceit of we must step in to be the referee. And But it seemed like Facebook responding to the profit motive was already responding to the problem. They're the ones who admitted the problem. Right, right. And so l- let me give an example. Okay. Um, I remember a few months ago, just someone I happened to know tweeting about a bad experience they had at a restaurant. And that restaurant called them up within two hours <laughs> and, and said, what can we do to make this right? We want to make sure you have a positive experience. Uh, there's another, another example where, and I don't think he tweeted, I think he posted a YouTube video. There's a guy who reviews motorcycles on, on, on YouTube uh, in Florida, and he test road one of the new honda gold wings yeah 
and he had he had no issues with the bike. He didn't complain about that or anything. But he had an issue with how the test ride was run, and they told him he couldn't film, and you know, you know, and right. so right, they were. It was like they were trying to shut down social media coverage. They wanted to control the message, and so he posted about that. And Honda said, "We're so sorry this happened. That was totally." unauthorized by by the by the individuals running that test ride we definitely want people like you to help inform consumers about our product please come out to california we'll set you up with a with a longer with a longer set of test rides where you can have the bike for a few days we'll put you up we'll give you a tour of a plant and all of that and it's amazing how powerful reputation becomes they're so concerned with the reputation that they're going to this guy who probably doesn't even have all that many followers on youtube right. you know maybe maybe fifty thousand or a hundred thousand that doesn't sound like a lot but he's a source of information that a lot of people go to well and you never know when you're a business these days who somebody knows or if they tell a compelling enough story and they don't have any followers they might gain followers i mean it's interesting how negativity like, and sometimes justified negative reviews or reactions get so much attention. Yeah. And I think business is very sensitive to that. Um, it just, I'm worried in general, Steve, that when I look at the political landscape, how people look at markets, how people look at the economy, even, say, the right, who will talk a good game about tax cuts and about free enterprise, we're the party of free markets, and... The Democrats, in many respects, are not, and they admit it. Uh, but even the folks who talk a good game usually end up giving all sorts of special privileges. I mean, it's not a consistent point of view, and it seems the perspective is the government is like the place where jobs are either created literally with a subsidy or a program, or if the free marketers want to tweak. They always want to tweak the rules here or there mm-hmm. to where the it's, it, the emphasis is always on what government is doing rather than what are people doing all around us every day to make the world a better place. Yeah, well, and I share that cynicism. <laughs> so, to me, the better approach, you know, this is a bit of a normative judgment, but it flows out of a positive analysis of politics and political economy. It seems to me the better approach is to create a system of checks and balances similar to what the founders intended that prevents a lot of that from happening. The abuse of political power. Right. So, for example, in the Constitution, you have the Commerce Clause, which means that interstate commerce is not – right? States can't erect protectionist measures against each other. The founders recognized early on that that would be a very big problem. Yes, a huge problem. I I can't imagine. The same logic does apply globally. But, of course, they understand it has to be within Congress's authority to at least least regulate international trade. Maybe there can be international security concerns. The question then, though, becomes why has that gone away so much? Why is it? The Congress hasn't declared war in so long. Why is it that mm. Congress isn't the one implementing these tariffs? What, what's going on there exactly with the rule of law and prescribed authorities in the Constitution? Now, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but that's something that really concerns me, is that there seem to be a set of rules in place, meta rules, rules above all the rules, constitutional limits on the federal government and constitutional limits on what states could do, that protected the population that protected people from that cronyism right. that can emerge right and 
And that's the way I try to put it. It's not... I think sometimes, and even folks uh, who share my political point of view, get too caught up because it is their country, it is where they live and the government they live under. Um, they get too focused on the U.S. government doing misguided things or mm-hmm. unwise things or just terribly awful things. And all those things exist, but my point of view, I'd try to make the point, is it's not just the U.S. government when they put up tariffs. It's the Chinese government. It's the Russian government. It's every government, all the European Union. Oh, the mm-hmm. European Union's a mess. When they, they're they generally taking advantage of all of us in the name of their play to your part of this collective group. They're taking advantage of your group identity to, I, I guess, pilfer you in, yeah. in the name of protection. It just and it baffles me that I now am hearing conservatives who talk a great game on income taxes say we need to raise taxes in order to make things fair. <laughs> That's the idea with tariffs, and I'm just amazed that is the argument being made these days. But again, we're talking to Steve Miller. He's an associate professor at Troy, the chair of the Adams Bibby Chair Free Enterprise. Um, I'm coming back. We're gonna keep this going, but we got to pay the bills. Hit a break. And then rest in pre- uh, peace. <laughs> rest in peace, Prince. Rest in peace. Oh, welcome back to it. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Well, tonight we're talking economics, trade. Uh, Generally, for me, it comes under the banner of uh, freedom. Uh, What's a free market? Free people. No, that's a big word. What does it mean to be free? Trading as they wish. To me, that's a free market. Of course, freedom means a lot. Um, Because you bring in, well... Do you have these things we call borders? Well, how do you administer those borders, whether your concern is economic or security-wise? And I'm very practical these days. I don't feel like a a libertarian abolitionist yelling and screaming at folks. Uh, But my guest tonight is a professor of economics, Stephen Miller. Steve, um, in the break, I thought of a concern, and I think it's it's a genuine concern, and I don't want to belittle people. Who feel this way, but there does seem to be a general anxiety, especially with the rise of AI and automation, that these things will put people out of a job and that the jobs people are just going to be gone forever. When you hear people express that worry, what do you think? Well, the first thing is, I think maybe, right? I, I worry about it, right? I, I say to myself, like, how, how will that work? What mm. will people do? If 90% of the current jobs are all automated, right? right. Are, are we, are, is, is nothing going to be left? Does that mean we're just going to be sitting around letting robots produce everything for us? And then I, then I sometimes wonder, well, how bad would that be? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Now, wait a minute. That would mean we have more leisure and we don't, have to, we don't have to work as much. But really, that's just not what history tells us will happen. 
right? How much of an increase in technology has there been in the last 40 years? What has been the impact of technology on production? How many jobs have been automated away in the last 40 years? And yet in the U.S., 40 years ago, we were struggling with very high unemployment and high uninflation. And now we're in a situation where both are very low, right? right? Globally, 40 years ago, there were fewer than 5 million people in the world, maybe close to 4 million people in the world. Now there's well over 7 billion people in the world. Yeah. So population has increased. I said million. Billion. Billion. Yeah. Billion. Uh, population has increased drastically, right? And yet globally, poverty has been reduced from 40% of the Earth's population to less than 10% of the Earth's population. Mm. That's an amazing amount of progress, while at the same time, population has increased greatly. What's going on there? What's going on there is that technology actually made it so that more people were able to find work, find a way through their labor to support themselves. The technology did not take away their jobs. The technology made them more productive and able to make themselves better off, lift themselves out of extreme poverty. And in the U.S., it's often meant people are lifting themselves out of one form of poverty, right, into the middle class or from the middle class into the upper middle class. And then what happens is through immigration, right, you have more people coming in at the bottom. But it's this continuous churn. Now, are you concerned with what is often the the less concern or people of that tendency uh, with inequality? And I'm not talking about, like, some people are... Uh, obviously in the United States history, enslavement, the Native Americans, those are all, I'm not talking about political freedoms and rights, but wealth inequality. Um, These sort of concerns of the richest 1% are only getting richer, um, let's kind of delve into this. Do you think it is a real problem, this sort of inequality, or maybe it does stem from some inequities that could be fixed, like political privileges and whatnot, the way the system works now. Or, I, I don't know, me, when somebody tells me, because I'm, I'm not shy about it, I make about 20-something a year, somebody tells me I'm a have-not, I don't feel that way. Mm-hmm. I just don't. So, And I know that I'm in the richest 1% of the world compared to everybody else. So... Is inequality a big concern of yours, wealth inequality? It is a big concern of mine, actually, Hmm. Joey. And you may have unintentionally set me up here. It's such a concern that my colleague G.P. Manish, who you know, he and I are editing a book on classical liberal perspectives on inequality. Wow, okay. And there are several great contributors to that book. Actually, uh, Deidre McCloskey has pledged to write a chapter, but Don Boudreau... uh, Richard Vetter, uh, you know, Steve Horwitz, a bunch of people are contributing to this book, and many of them have already given us their submissions. So it's really coming together well. But besides bragging about that project, which we're very excited about, <laughs> should be. it came out of a real concern about inequality. And, and let me tell you how this happened, how I started. I won't talk about how I started thinking about it, because what happened is I'd already been doing research on income inequality, on the data. I was just very immersed in the U.S. income inequality data, where that comes from. So nowadays it mostly comes from tax returns. It comes from the IRS. And so that has that has a particular effect on the patterns of inequality. But what happened to me one day was GP came into my office and he said, you, you've been doing all this stuff on inequality, right? That's 
kind of what you do in research now? And I said, yeah. Uh, and it's, 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 it's just really fascinating. There's so much to get at with the numbers. And part of the trouble is figuring out what kind of inequality is the type of inequality that people really care about. Mm. And he says, well, that's exactly what I'm thinking about. So GP, as you know, is from India. And he says, there's something wrong with the way inequality is measured. And I said, well, yeah, no kidding. I look at the data. It comes <laughs> from tax returns. There's all kinds of issues with with where the data is sourced. And he goes, no, no, no. I mean, I mean, he says, you look at the U.S. data. The U.S. data is really, really good by comparison. It's very high quality. What I'm talking about is internationally. And mm-hmm. I said, well, you know, I've looked at some stuff about international inequality. I haven't just thought, about, thought a lot about it. And he said... So one way of measuring inequality is with something called a Gini coefficient, which yeah. basically measures how spread out the income distribution is in a country. And he said, the Gini coefficient shows that India has a lower level of inequality than the United States does. And he says, but I, I know that can't be right. And I said, well, maybe, maybe I agree with you. What do you mean? And he says, look, if you're in India and you're just even lower middle class. What that means is that you essentially have servants, you, right? or, or certainly solidly middle class. It means you have servants. It means it, you don't have a washing machine. You have people come to your house and wash your clothes, right? You don't... Uh, if, if, you, if you hire a plumber or you hire, especially if you hire like a carpenter or you hire someone to watch your kids, you know, they arrive on foot or they arrive on a bicycle. He said, if you hire a uh, even a babysitter, right? If you hire a babysitter or a carpenter or, or anyone in the U.S., they arrive in a car or they arrive in a truck, and there's a good chance that truck is nicer than yours, right? There's right. a good chance that car is nicer than yours. And he says, so something is going on. He's, he lives in Troy. I live yeah. in Montgomery. Uh, and so he probably sees even more of this because it probably is more true in a smaller city. But he says, you know, Anyone that I hire, that I employ, it's not like I'm in a different class. In India, you would be in a different class if you employ someone, right? Mm. There would be this social gulf between you, this very real and tangible inequality. But in the U.S., he says, these are people, their kids are in the same soccer league as my kids. When I go out to eat, sometimes I run into people, you know, who work for me in the restaurant. And it's more, it's more mutual. There's a, there's a, there's a more clear sense of people being peers and equals right. in those relationships. It's not that so-and-so works for me and I'm above them. It's that we have a mutually beneficial exchange going on. Hmm. And so I said, well, that's really interesting because I think you're right. Because poverty in India still means, as, as much as India has grown over the last 20 years in terms of its ec- macroeconomy, it, poverty still means something very different there than it means in the U.S. Right. As bad as poverty can be in the U.S., poverty in, in India, particularly in rural India, means you are not getting enough to eat. You may not even have access to clean water, right? right? You don't have access to indoor electricity. It's, it's really bad. It's not even, the, the lights are shut off sometimes. It's, it's not even possible. A better life isn't even possible, not even 10, 20 years in the future mm. when you imagine it. And, and so as much as that country's grown and as much as inequality in some ways has been reduced, when they measure it internationally, it looks like the Gini coefficient in India is actually going up. It looks like inequality's increased. Well, why? Why does it look like it's increased? Because when there's been so much movement in terms of people in the middle classes moving up and getting and right and being able to achieve more. So the distribution has spread out. Right. And there's still obviously a lot of poor people. But tens of millions maybe even 100 million or 200 million people in India have been made much better off than they were before. And often the poorest of the poor 
were able to move up to the point where they had electricity in their home, and then that means you can have an electric fan. Uh, and so GP's contribution to the book is he's he's looking at things like consumer goods, like televisions and electric fans, and how the ownership of those have has grown since India engaged in trade liberalization and industrial uh, reduction of industrial regulation. So instead of measuring inequality just by income. And just by the the money you bring in, so to speak, actual standards of living based on what is at your disposal in terms of goods and services. Yes, and you're allowing me to come in a bit of a circle because someone who's been really active in promoting that has been Mark per- Mark Perry, yes. our guest speaker on Wednesday next week, where he's he he's one of the proponents of going and looking at the basket of consumable goods, looking at goods that people have, and qualitatively how much better those goods have. Got become, but also how many fewer hours of labor it takes for the typical family mm. to be able to purchase something like a flat screen TV, to purchase something like a mobile phone, to purchase a thousand square feet of living space. Well, and I continually am amazed. Like I said, I'm not raking in all this money. I'm a single person. I don't have a family like yourself. To, you know, I'd imagine with my current income, if I had a family, it'd be a bit uncomfortable. Well, if you had the mouths to feed that I do. Yeah. Exactly. But when it's just my mouth, um, I'm continually amazed. I can go over to the grocery store. I can pick up fresh, like I'm doing that, fresh mushrooms, farm-raised eggs, bacon, butter, like all these things I can never make myself mm-hmm. and within you know 30 minutes I have an incredible meal and it's like I don't feel poor by any standard and so when I see folks complaining about how much other people have and you know I'm all for the critique if somebody got it by an ill-gotten gain so to speak or if somebody's lording it over somebody who does take on that sort of class mythology like I'm better than you in every way because I have more money I don't like that but generally when I look at the opportunities just at me not concerned with other people life is good especially in the United States of America it's an amazing time to be alive it is an amazing time to be alive uh, and frankly I probably I'm relating to what you're saying, Joey. I think when I had less money or when I made less money, I worried a lot less about it. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Because whatever it was, it was enough to get by. Yeah. Right? It was enough enough for us to feed ourselves. It was enough to have basic transportation. You didn't get obsessed with, well, oh, no, there's a better version of my car on the market. Right. Right? You know, that's the hard thing, maybe. Maybe that is the downside I see. The one big downside I will admit that I see in a free market is that for people who aren't careful about it, who aren't careful to be grateful, it's easy to think about what you don't have instead of what you do have because so much is made available, so much is possible, that sometimes you see the things that are just out of your reach. It's, well, it's don't covet your neighbor's goods or ox or wife. Weird that all those were included in the same thing. That's a long time ago. Well, Catholics split it into two commandments. There you go. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, Steve, we've run out of time, but thank you for joining me. This went well and went fast, so I'm, I'm very happy.